you guys, you know, send the men out to dance and stuff and strip? Yeah. Would it be a full strip down? You mean nude? Completely. No. Is there any way they would do that? No. There's no way they could jiggle something in my buddy's eyes for his birthday? No. You're sick. This stuff is awesome. Like, these people are just loving everything they have. And yeah, I mean, lots of stories of like that. And literally when we weren't on the job, we were hanging out with these people, just talking to them, learning about them, you know, chasing their daughters around and stuff. But like, that's a different story. You know, they want to see if they can get better results with someone else. That's what my wife said. I understand. I just realized that I really wasn't happy, not controlling my time, feeling like my time and my effort that I was putting in wasn't as valued as much as what I was doing for the company. How do taxes work for you? <laughs> That's a good question. So, sometimes we would split up and go to different areas to, to hit different stores. And that's kind of when the, it first started clicking that like, if we want to have this type of stuff in our lives, we really need to be the business owners instead of the employees. So my name is Mike Begg. I am 31 years old. I'm originally from Connecticut but I live now in Guadalajara, Mexico. And my background, I was working in corporate real estate development, got kind of tired of that and wanted to start something for myself. Also had some other things going on in that job that kind of pushed me away from that. And I jumped into e-commerce and that just led to learning more and more about selling on Amazon and eventually to the agency I have today called AMZ Advisors, where we help other brands and manufacturers maximize their sales on the Amazon platform. Cool. Well, you gave us your whole story there in 30 seconds. So I think that's the fastest I've ever done an interview. <laughs> well, I just have to get that elevator pitch down. I mean, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Well, I appreciate it. No, I, I love it because then now it's going to make it easier for everyone to understand how you got to where you are today. But yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about Amazon advisors first and then we'll roll it back to how you got started? Sure, definitely. So we've been around since about 2015. Right now we have a team of 30 people in the US, Mexico and Asia. And I founded it with myself and two other partners. We've worked with a lot of different companies and brands that are selling on the Amazon platform or are looking to get onto the Amazon platform. And some of these brands are you know, household names. We've worked with some brands that Johnson & Johnson owns, Procter & Gamble owns, some very well-known brand names, as well as small businesses. So there's really no limit to who can succeed on the Amazon platform. And we've helped these huge multinationals go from a couple of million to tens of millions or more on the Amazon platform. But we've also helped small mom and pop stores or one-person operations go from $300,000 a year to over $3 million a year. So it's really no limits to who can actually grow on the Amazon platform. And we're just trying to help people realize their goals and get the best results for themselves. And you said you were in Mexico? I am. I'm in Guadalajara, Mexico. Why are you there? <laughs> That's a long story. But originally, when we were starting the business, you know, the agency side, we were quitting our corporate jobs. We were taking a risk as we saw it. And we wanted to limit the amount of risk we had. We wanted to limit our expenses to make sure that we gave this business the best chance to get off the ground. So what we did was we actually moved to Playa del Carmen, Mexico, and lived there for a while. And we were there for about, well, I was there for about four months. And the business really started gaining traction then. And after that, I kind of realized that I could run this from anywhere. Uh, I actually ended up coming to Guadalajara for a month just to see the city. And I ended up meeting my future girlfriend at that time. And she's from here. I've been living here ever since. So... Nice. And so did that actually work out? Was it way cheaper to live there versus where you were living before? 
<laughs> yes, it's a huge difference. I mean, being from the tri-state area in Connecticut, I remember I was living in Stanford, which it's a small city outside of New York, and I was paying about $1,500 a month for a bedroom in a three-bedroom apartment. I mean, the apartment was very nice, but still, that was expensive just for a bedroom. And just in comparison, my previous apartment here was a two-bedroom apartment in a luxury tower with three pools, a full gym, a spa, all this stuff, and that was for less than a 1000 So yeah, I mean, it does make a big difference cost-wise by moving outside of the U.S., although you know it's not as much of a concern now, but it still allows me to save a lot of money and use that to invest and start other businesses. And so do you see yourself like staying down there forever? That's a tough one. <laughs> In Mexico, there's a good chance of it. I mean, like I said, my girlfriend's from here. She doesn't have any burning desire to go to the U.S. She's not a big fan. I would like <laughs> Why to, is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, she just doesn't like it. She doesn't like Americans, so, but somehow she's dating one, so go figure. I would love to end up at the beach, though, down here, because that's just more of my style and just more of what I prefer. Okay. And so you said Amazon Advisor, just 30 people today. And how many people are in the Mexico versus the other areas that you listed off? Sure. So we have 20 people here in Mexico, and that's not including myself and my two partners who actually also live in Mexico. They live in uh, Playa del Carmen. And in Asia, we have two people. And then in America, we have, or in the US, we have seven people. We previously had an employee in Europe as well, but that didn't work out as well. So. Okay. And so basically, are you just trying to get people, if they have Amazon listings or want to get something listed today with Amazon advisors, you're basically helping them with their listings and taking a cut or like, how does that work your financial models for it today? Yeah. So we primarily work on a monthly retainer, although there are, uh, we do offer a la carte services as well, but our main service is, you know, full management. So we're taking over everything. You start working with us, we're going to optimize all the content to make sure your Amazon listings look good. We're going to help you develop a lot of the strategies that are really going to help you grow. And then we're going to manage the advertising for you. So really, you just have to focus on managing your inventory levels, which makes it a lot easier for our clients. And then we're having biweekly consulting calls with them so we can just walk them through the process. And what's your life like today? I know you're in Mexico, but how many hours are you working and what's life like down in there in Mexico? I still more or less work full time. Definitely flexible that I'm on my own hours. So I kind of start when I want and end when I want, which is great. But the great thing about being here is that we've been able to hire a lot of really great employees for our team. So more and more of our responsibilities are being taken over by a lot of the people that we're hiring. And that's just allowing us to scale more. It's allowing us to focus our time and energy. When I say us, myself and the other partners on other projects that we're working on. And yeah, I mean, it's a pretty great lifestyle. I really can't complain about it. Did you see yourself ever getting to this point like earlier in your life? You having a business with two partners and living in Mexico? <laughs> I always had kind of a desire to go travel and go explore and, you know, see more things. I don't didn't really know that that would come out down to living in another country. And I also don't think I was ever really someone who was like super entrepreneurial when I was younger. You know, I was never out there shoveling snow or, you know, with a lemonade stand, just kind of doing my own stuff. And it just kind of happened by chance once I started working in the corporate world and I just realized that I really wasn't happy not controlling my time, feeling like my time and my effort that I was putting in wasn't as valued as much as what I was doing for the company. So that's really what started pushing me down the entrepreneurial route. And luckily I had two great business partners that had a similar feeling from the companies they were working at and were just ready to try to do something on their own. And before we reel back, I guess... Do y'all like have an office down there? Because I don't know if it's all virtual. I know you said you had 20 people down there, but how's that work? Yeah, we do have an office. So here in Guadalajara, we have an office for about 12 people. 
We have some team members who are in Monterrey, which is in the north of Mexico, a couple that are in Playa del Carmen. We have another small office there that my partners use. And yeah, I mean, it's been great. We're all virtual essentially now because of the pandemic, but having the office here has really allowed us to build a more of a presence that makes us seem like a real business instead of being you know, just some company from the US that's hiring freelancers. I mean, we've actually created a great company culture within our team. We've been able to keep hiring great people and it's just allowed us to tap into this labor market more and continue to expand and find higher level people to really manage the operations of the business. Were you ever like scared being in Mexico? Because as far as a safety concern, I mean, I guess it obviously depend where you are in Mexico and even city to city, but just curious from that factor as well. I think that's a tough one. I mean, yeah, there's obviously areas that are sketchy and like, you know, I'm not going to go to, but I think that's almost the same as the US. I mean, I'm from originally from Connecticut. The town that I grew up next to has one of the highest murder rates in the entire country. So when it comes to thinking of what's safe and what's not safe, it's really all perspective on it. I know a lot of times we get a lot of news in the U.S. about things that are happening in Mexico. And obviously, it's the worst things that we're hearing about. But I mean, day-to-day stuff, it's pretty safe. I mean, it's there's petty robbery, petty theft, stuff like that. But when it comes to really having something bad happen to me. I don't think I've ever really been in a position where I felt that something like that was going to happen in Mexico. Okay. Yeah. So you've never like really even been scared since you've lived down there? Mm, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, there's been a couple things where I'm like, what's going on just because I don't understand. But again, it's not really like something that's happening around me. It's just happening somewhere else in Mexico. And yeah, no, I haven't personally felt scared down here. Like what? Like what were you talking about? The example that you didn't understand what was going around? I think it was... 2019 in Sinaloa, which is the next state over. This is such a typical story, but El Chapo's son was like captured by the federal police here and Culiacan, which is the city, went into like a full riot and armed people popped out of everywhere. They pretty much overthrew the city until they gave back El Chapo's son. So, I mean, that's crazy narco stuff. And that's like really in certain areas, but where I've lived and where I've been, I've never really had to deal with that. Did you know that companies that blog consistently receive 67% more leads than those that don't? Consistent blogging is important, but who has the time to research keywords, come up with topics, write content, and more? BKA Content, a content writing agency with 10 plus years of experience, now offers a monthly subscription that will do it all for you. They offer different sized packages depending on how many blogs per month you'd like. You'll have a dedicated account manager that will do all your keyword research and topic creation and blog writing. You can even get social media posts, stock images, and meta entitled tags. All of your monthly blog posts deliver directly to your inbox, 100% ready to publish. If you sign up right now, you can get up to one month's worth of blogs for free. Go to bkacontent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and get your free month of blogs. That's bkacontent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and again, get your free month of blogs. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one catch at all. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. 
By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs and they get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes on sweet savings direct to you. And here's some of my personal experience with Mint Mobile. It's awesome, just like you. Plus, I'm saving over 50 bucks a month by using Mint Mobile. My old provider was charging me $65 for the exact same coverage I get with Mint Mobile. So for people looking for extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash millionaire. That's mintmobile.com slash millionaire and cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash millionaire. Yeah, now I'm feeling you. News is only going to report negative things because that's what gives them more clicks or interesting. So that's why I always want to hear it from a perspective like you. Like I've got a friend that his family's from Mexico. He wasn't even from there. I know he said certain parts of Mexico City are sketchy. Again, like any city that you're in, like I'm in Jacksonville, there's certain hood parts where, I mean, I would go and I probably wouldn't feel comfortable, but I still haven't been scared. And I've traveled a lot. I'm like, once things start getting a little sketchier, then you usually just turn around and start going to the nicer neighborhoods again. It's not like I'm going up asking for crack or something like that, you know? Exactly. And I mean, I have that same experience from when I grew up in Connecticut. I mean, I was next to Bridgeport and in between New Haven. So I'm close to both of them. They both have very high murder rates, very high crime rates. And you just know what neighborhoods not to go to. So same thing here. I mean, when you stay in the right neighborhoods, you stay in a good area as long as you're not doing anything that's a little shady. You're not going to have any problems in Mexico for the most part. Well, thanks for giving us that insight. I thought it was interesting because it's so interesting how close Mexico is to the U.S., right? Because, I mean, I'm in Florida, too, and it just seems like there's so much potential. Then I hear some negative things, but it's like I never hear a perspective of someone who's living down there or get to meet people who are from there. So it's pretty cool. Have you met a lot of U.S. people or you just kind of stick with the Mexicans and your Mexican girlfriend? Oh, no, I have a lot of friends down here from the U.S. and from Canada, as well as other countries. There's a lot of foreigners here in Guadalajara. I mean, one of my best friends, he runs a hedge fund in the U.S. from down here. Another one ran a tech company that he sold off. So when it comes to meeting people that are both foreigners and Mexicans, there's a lot of interesting people. Another really cool thing about here in Guadalajara is there's a huge startup scene because there's a lot of tech talent here. And a lot of big tech companies are here like Oracle, IBM, Intel, DD, Uber. So there's a lot of really, really smart people here. And a lot of them are starting their own businesses. So it's always interesting people to meet and you know talk to and figure out what they're doing. So I think overall, it's a pretty great environment to be living in. And I mean, for running a business, there's really not much better than tapping into the Mexican labor market for a service that we're charging in US dollars. Right. Okay. Well, that's cool. So if anyone was interested, you'd recommend Guadalajara. Is there anywhere else, like or as far as top places to not even quote unquote, like safety, but like meet other entrepreneurs, or if they wanted to go check it out, the potential in Mexico, where would you recommend they check out? Yeah. I mean, if you're going more for the business vibe, then I think Guadalajara is great. I think Mexico City and Monterey are all great too, although they're a little different. You know, Monterey, you're going to get a lot more manufacturing and a lot more physical products here in Guadalajara. It's a lot more tech. Mexico City, you kind of get a mix of everything, but you get foreigners, you get people from the US, from Canada, from other countries in South America. 
in Central America. So lots of people to meet. I think if from the business aspect, any of the cities are really great for that, the three big cities. And if you're looking more for just like a more relaxed lifestyle, there's a lot of great places as well. Playa del Carmen is a place where we spend a lot of time. My partners still live. There's some good co-working spots there. There's a lot more of the digital nomads there. So still a lot of foreigners that are traveling. It's more of a relaxed beach lifestyle, but I mean, Cabo San Lucas is great for that as well. So is Puerto Vallarta. There's a lot of expats in Puerto Vallarta. So yeah, I mean, that's more of the relaxed beach style. It really depends on what you're looking for. Okay. Do you ever go to like El Salvador or anything like that in Central America, a little bit further south? I've been to Nicaragua. I've been to Guatemala. Uh, haven't been to Costa Rica or El Salvador or Honduras. I landed in El Salvador once, but I never got out of the airport. Those other places I really don't care about. Guatemala was pretty cool. Nicaragua is pretty cool when there's not like political unrest going on there. And Costa Rica is, is supposed to be beautiful too. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of awesome places near here to check out. And the flights are cheap. The cost of living is pretty cheap. And yeah, you really can't beat it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so do you just fly to all these places in like small planes? Yeah, I have direct flights. We have an international airport here in Guadalajara, so it's not as great as the Mexico City airport where you can connect pretty much everywhere. But from here, I have direct flights to a lot of Western US cities, including New York, Chicago, Denver, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, Arizona, Dallas, Houston. So pretty much a lot of major cities in the US I can fly to directly. Central America going the other way, I've got direct flights from here to Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica. Panama, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil. So lots of great flights. So it's pretty easy to get around from here. How do taxes work for you from there? <laughs> That's a good question. So <laughs> there's actually, I mean, obviously I'm going to preface this, but that you should always talk to a tax accountant or a tax lawyer. But there is a unique rule here in Mexico where you can get something called temporary residency. But as a temporary resident, you can stay for up to four years and you don't have to actually register for a tax ID. So I don't pay any taxes in Mexico living here. The only taxes I pay are in the U.S. And to preface that, because I live outside of the U.S. for more than 330 days a year and I have residency in another country, I actually get a tax break in the U.S. So the first about $105,000 of my income is tax-free. And on top of that, you can get housing deductions. You can get a lot of other tax benefits. I mean, in total, if you're contributing to IRAs, to retirement plans like that, you can pretty much make your first $150,000 a year tax-free living in Mexico or living in another country. It's just that Mexico has that unique rule for not having to pay taxes in the country if you're a temporary resident. Oh, nice. Thanks for that insight, man. Everyone should be thanking you right now if they end up going abroad. Because I've heard of things like that. And I thank you for explaining that, especially, I guess, with the Mexico, you're saying for four years because of their taxes, you don't have to pay them. But if you went to Europe or some other country in Europe, maybe those countries might have to pay in-country tax, right? But you wouldn't have to pay the U.S. tax if you're outside of it for more than 330 days. Yeah. Again, yeah. talk to a tax advisor, clear. right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even still, it's very particular knowledge. Like, you know, you really need to find someone that's experienced with people living abroad to really understand these taxes benefits because you know I discovered this on my own. Even my normal accountant that I was telling this about, he was like, get out of here. Like, this is real. And then I actually had to point him to all the resources and he researched it himself. And he was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. So yeah, I mean, it's just funny. There's not a lot of people that know about it. And it's really, really nice. It's a very great tax break to get if you're a US citizen. And if you're from outside of the US, like Canada, the Canadian tax breaks even better because if you live outside of the country for six months a year, you pay zero taxes. So much less than the 330 days that I need to. 
Wow. All right. Well, again, thanks for that insight, man. Why don't we go ahead and reel it back to when you came out of college and then getting your first job and then how you became an e-commerce guru? <laughs> of course. Yeah, sure. So I graduated from St. Joe's University in Philadelphia. I was a double major there, economics, political science. I was kind of thinking about going to law school. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life at that point, to be honest. My concept growing up was that I had to get a good job. I had to get a safe job, something that paid well, something that I didn't have to worry about it because I was always fed those ideas by my parents and the people around me. And that led me to going to work for Deloitte Consulting after graduating. And I worked at Deloitte for about a year and a half and I realized I was absolutely miserable. I hated the work schedule. I felt like I had no free time. Even the time I had outside of work, I was just so drained and miserable from what I was doing at work. So from there, I kind of realized that I needed a change. Well, one second, real quick. What were you yeah. doing at work that was so miserable? It's just the hours. I mean, working in consulting was frustrating because you're traveling a lot. You're working on big projects. You know, when you have deadlines, you have to work your hours no matter what until you get it done. So it wasn't anything that was really enjoyable. And again, it came back to the point of feeling like my time wasn't valued for the amount of work that I was putting in and the amount of effort I was putting in. Okay. So yeah, it was just frustrating. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. So I mean, how many hours do you think you were like working? Sometimes 65, 70 hours a week. Yeah. It was just like, it was brutal. And then fitting that in with trying to go to the gym and like having a normal lifestyle just made it very exhausting. All right. So after Deloitte, what ended up happening? You were working there for a year and a half and time to move somewhere else? Yeah. Actually, while I was still at Deloitte, I started thinking like what I wanted to do next and try to figure something out. And I was always very interested in real estate. And I started taking some courses at NYU on real estate investment, real estate development, real estate finance. And from there, I started trying to use my experience and what I was learning in school to find a job that I found interesting. And I had a few unique opportunities. One was to start my own mortgage brokerage and pretty much have investment in my own backing to go ahead and do that. And that sounded really cool at the time, but obviously it was a big risk. I was still kind of risk adverse at that point because I wasn't really the entrepreneur on my own. It's really when I started thinking about it more and more. And the other great opportunity I had was to go work in real estate development. And I came on to work at Sears, actually, the big retailer. I joined when we were spinning off the Seritage REIT. So that was a $2.2 billion transaction. And then I actually stayed on with Sears after that just to pretty much help manage their portfolio, redevelop properties that showed a lot of potential or were in good areas, and you know, just try to maximize the value that we could get from a lot of the real estate assets we had. So that was a really enjoyable job, something completely different than what I was doing at Deloitte. It was fun to be working on a lot of different things, to be actually planning, feel like you had control of the project instead of being told what to do with the project. So yeah, it was a totally different environment. I enjoyed it a lot more. That makes sense too. I mean, it, people might be think like, oh, it just still sounds like an office job or whatever, but it sounds like what you were saying, the one before you're being managed and told what to do all the time. And not only the hours, that would be annoying as shit. But <laughs> yeah. with this new one, it sounds like you got to use some of your creativity and you got to kind of figure it out and try to advise what to do. Is that exactly. what you sound right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. There are obviously good aspects and bad aspects of that. I mean, sometimes you got to do stuff that's just time consuming. Like with any real estate, you need to be reading the lease deals. You need to be reading the operating agreements for malls. And then even beyond that, there's still a lot of legal nonsense that you need to deal with, with property laws, local zoning restrictions, ordinances, all of that stuff. That's not so much fun. But yeah, 
when you have this property and you're like, all right, well, this is 10 acres or whatever it is, 20 acres in a lot of these mall spaces because the mall actually owns the parking lot. How can we redevelop this 20 acres and get the most value from it? I mean, do we just split up the existing store and put new tenants in there? Do we tear down the entire store and do we put restaurants and smaller shops? Do we turn it into mixed use and, and try to get some office or multifamily space in there as well? So there was a lot of cool ways to approach it. And it was definitely more fun because I had to give my creativity and figure it out. One of the most exciting projects that I worked on was a property that we actually had in New Brunswick, New Jersey, right next to Rutgers University. And I had an awesome plan to redevelop that property and turn it into, you know, we could have sold it for like 10 million. If we redeveloped it, the asset value could have been like 200 million. I worked hard on that to figure out that it was so much fun, but that was really a prime example of taking something that I have a piece of dirt and now how can I maximize the value from this piece of dirt? And yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Did you go forward with that project? Unfortunately, I didn't because Sears didn't have the money to spend. I think our development costs were about $90 million on that project. So we really just developed it and then we started shopping for JV partners on it. And we were working with a development group out of Chicago, and I can't remember what the name of it is now, that have done a lot of other big retail developments in the Chicago area. And we were talking about it for a long time. We couldn't really find the agreement on it. And then I actually ended up leaving Sears before anything ever happened with it. And I don't think anything actually got done with that mall site. So yeah, it's part of the process. I mean, you come up with the ideas, you pitch them, you try to get everybody on board, you try to get the stakeholders in place, and then hopefully you can actually execute and get the project done. This was just an instance where that didn't happen. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say an instance. That's the only problem like with doing real estate development and why I never want to get into it. It's like, you have to go through so much shit just to get it done. Especially we didn't even talk about any of the governance stuff. Like if you had to go to city council and see if that, like you're just trying to find partners and, you know, even get the funding lined up first. And is this such a headache? And I don't know if that was one of the reasons you left too, but it's just, at least you got the user creativity, but then it gets kind of stifled again when people don't want to do it. And if you don't have the money and you're not in charge, then it's kind of understandable. You're like, okay, well, how many more of these do I have to do where they're going to say no to it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's cool when the big projects come together, but the amount of effort that you need to put in for a lot of the big projects is almost the same that you need to put in for the small project. You know, I did a small development. It was actually just a land lease to Aldi's in New Jersey. And Aldi's was, we were just giving them the land scraped free, nothing on it. It was a former Sears Auto Center. And just the amount of bureaucracy in dealing with New Jersey politics, local politics especially, was crazy. We had to redevelop our site plan so many times to meet every little group that had any say over what this property was, whether it was state, local, federal. It is exhausting. I mean, that's definitely not as much fun as the actual idea part. But it's just part of the job. And I don't think I left because it was stressful to get that stuff done. I think I more moved on because a lot of the projects that I was pitching and seeing the value in, we really weren't taking up. And it wasn't so much that they weren't good project ideas. It's just that the company didn't have the money. So I was really interested if I was going to stay in real estate development, which I didn't. But if I did, I wanted to make sure that I was working with the people that actually had the money to go forward with the ideas that I was putting up. Okay. Well, yeah, perfect transition because I was going to ask why you left. And again, from your perspective, and I think we all understand that it just sucks that they didn't have the money to do it. So you saw that, right? It seems like it was close enough. But again, if you can't get funding to do it, it's not even the governance that's keeping you out of it. It's that they don't have enough money. So what happened from there? Yeah. So, I mean, it was more of a general trend. I mean, that was just part of it that played a role. At the same time, you know, I'm working for a company that's pretty much failing. Uh -huh. 
you know, I had a lot of insight into Sears data on the store by store basis. And it's sad in a way when you look at this, and this goes into the other part of the job, but when you look at the month by month sales data, or the year by year sales data per store, and you just see it declining over continuously. <laughs> Right. You're, you're looking at that trend. You're like, oh, this is not a good trend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this could be an issue. So really I started thinking a lot more about just job security as well. You know, I had a great paying job. I was making a lot of money doing real estate development. Well, how much money were you making? I mean, I was making six figures from doing it at Sears. Okay. It was low six figures, but still like, yeah. But still awesome. like you're only a few years out of college yeah, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like the amount of responsibility I had was big, but this kind of goes back into part of the issues with the company is that, you know, you see sales go decreasing month over month. And a lot of the senior people that I was working with in the real estate development group were leaving to take jobs at other companies. And cool part of that was I was given a lot more responsibility than I probably would have had if I was at that stage in my career anywhere else. But at the same time, it's kind of like a red flag in your head where you're like, why are they jumping shit? Maybe I should look at this a little bit more. So yeah, that's kind of the thinking on it. Okay. So I guess it's about 2016 or so when you leave and how old are you at this time? I guess 26, 27? I was, yeah, I think 26. I think it was 2015 when I left. I mean, yeah, 2015, 2016 when I left, I was about 26. Honestly, the years all blend together now at this point. I can't even believe yeah. it's 2021. But Yeah, you're getting old now, so. I know. Uh, yeah, I just, <laughs> at 31, I just pretend that I'm still 26. So anyway, but yeah, I was young. I mean, I was really young. I had a lot of responsibility there. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. So then you decide to leave. What happens from there? Where'd you go? During that time, while I was there, and I saw Sears like in-store brick-and-mortar sales dropping, I started paying attention more to a lot of the stuff that I was seeing in the real estate space. So one of the interesting trends that was happening was a lot of these crap C&D malls were being bought up by Amazon and FedEx and UPS, and they were being turned into distribution centers, which was interesting for me because, all right, now we're seeing these actual physical stores not having a need anymore. And now everything's going online. That's really when we started looking into the online space more. Who's we? Just you or? Myself and my partners. Yeah. The same okay. partners I have today. We started together right out of our corporate jobs. One of them worked in project management. One of them worked in sales for a recruiting company. And we were all kind of in a similar situation where we like, we just wanted to do something for ourselves at that point. Okay. And so were y'all just brainstorming business ideas? We were. Yeah. We had a lot of different ideas trying to make things work. Mine was primarily focused on real estate because that's what I knew at the time. But my business partner kind of brought up the idea of Amazon and selling stuff on Amazon. And he found that you could start selling eBooks on the Amazon platform, which pretty much cost nothing to create. So it was a really low upfront cost. Then you just earn royalties on it. And we each kind of did this on our own, creating our own eBooks. And we still have monthly royalties that we earned from them when we wrote these in you know, 2015 or 2014, whenever it was. What type of eBooks are you authors of? <laughs> well, we actually have a variety of different ones. One eBook was on marijuana farming. Another was on diet trends or diet fads. Another, I wrote a couple on uh, real estate. But the majority of these books, we were just outsourcing to ghostwriters to write for us for a couple hundred dollars. And they were doing all the writing for us. So we really just had to research the topic, tell them what we wanted it about, and they wrote the entire book for us. Okay. 
thought it was like how to get a bigger penis and stuff like that too. None of that? <laughs> no, I don't think we had any of those, but we did. <laughs> you hit have... all the other trends. You hit all the other trends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we I forgot who asked me this, but we were going through the books and one was on, I guess, project management. Another was on real estate and someone asked me, so they were like, so I see on your website, someone wrote a book about marijuana. I was like, so you had the real estate book. Someone else had the project management books. Which of your partners has the marijuana farm? <laughs> and I was like, ah, yeah, none of us do that'd be nice though but yeah just funny yeah did y'all make decent money and were you doing that before y'all quit your current jobs yep we were doing that before we started you know we made i think at the height we were making not much maybe a thousand dollars a month from it it wasn't something where we were going to quit our jobs and completely survive on but it gave us some type of cash flow to really start exploring things more and that's when we started learning about selling physical products on the amazon side and that was another learning experience. And we started with a process called retail arbitrage, where we were essentially going to Walmart and Target and just buying everything on clearance and then throwing it up on Amazon and selling. And we ended up making about 10K from that. And then we realized that we could build our own brands and build our own products and start importing products. So with that first 10, 12K, we imported a bunch of products from Asia from China with our branding on it. And we started selling those on the platform. Well, real quick before that, what did you buy at Walmart? I know you said stuff on clearance, but just curious because I'm sure everyone else is too. Like, what did you get on clearance to sell on Amazon there? Yeah. So we sold a bunch of different things, video games, a lot of video games. The first product we actually sold was an internet router that we got for like 20 bucks in Walmart, Target, and sold it for, I think, 80 bucks on Amazon. So yeah, those were kind of the first products that we were selling. It was primarily electronics, video games, but we sold a lot of household goods as well. So, And so did all of y'all bring them home to your apartment and then <laughs> ship them out in boxes from there? We did. We actually, on the weekends when we were kind of still having these corporate jobs, we would just drive to a certain area. I mean, tri-state area, it's pretty easy to get around from Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. We hit the entire tri-state area, every Walmart, every Target we could find, but buying everything, bringing it back home, and then sending it to Amazon and selling it that way. Oh, so you sent it to Amazon Warehouse and then it'd be there and then it would get sold from there? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what we were doing. I know you said there's two other partners. What are their names? Steve and Rob. Okay. Steve, Rob, and Mike. <laughs> that is it. Is that it? Yep. <laughs> I like it because it's just very simple names, right? But so the three of you, did y'all just get in one car together and like you talk up your business ideas or what you're going to do next and just go to Target and Walmart together? Yeah. The great thing at the time was Rob and I were actually living together. We had an apartment that we shared. Steve was there like all the time. So even during the week, we would, you know, after work, we all worked in Stanford, which was where we were living. After work, we would all just kind of come over and just start planning, plotting, trying to figure out what to do. And yeah, even, you know, driving around in our cars, we were all in just the same cars. Sometimes we would split up and go to different areas to, to hit different stores. But yeah. <laughs> Sounds like robbing Yeah, people. kind of in a way. Kind of in a way. It's what it feels like. It's weird when you're walking out of a store sometimes with 20 copies of some video game. People are like, what the heck are you doing? But I mean, it makes money. So that's what we were doing. Yeah. You weren't on like the child predators list or anything like that from that doing that, were you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> At least I'm not aware of it. So I'm just making sure that's probably the first thing that they're th like, why does this guy need so many video games? Right? Like, <laughs> Is he trying to hang out with kids or whatever? But okay, so you're buying that. And I guess I know they had their other jobs, but how did you know them? I guess, yeah, just tell us how you met Steve and Rob. So we've actually all been friends for a long time. Rob and I go way back. We've been friends since, I mean, pretty much kindergarten. Steve 
we met before our freshman year of high school, right after eighth grade, we all played lacrosse as well in high school. So we were kind of introduced to each other as part of the team. So we all kind of knew each other. And then from there, we've all just been friends. You know, Rob and Steve actually went to the same college together, just in different ways. We've kind of always just been in each other's lives. And then from there, we just kind of had the ideas to start building businesses together. Oh, that's cool. I mean, in high school, I guess we're all just friends at that point, but y'all ended up talking about business, I guess, like afterwards, after college. Is that when that transition happened? Yeah, I think we all kind of had the same mentality of like, we had to get good jobs and stuff like that. And you know, whatever that meant. <laughs> but when my eyes really, I think first started opening to what I was seeing and like who actually had, you know, the nice houses or the nice cars or whatever was when I was in college. Steve and I actually would work on a island during the summer, Block Island, at a marina resort, and we would just be tying these mega yachts coming in all the time. And all these people that have these mega yachts, they own their own businesses. A lot of them were in construction or other like related fields like that, but some of them had restaurants, some of them had other businesses like that. And that's kind of when the, it first started clicking that like if we want to have this type of stuff in our lives, we really need to be the business owners instead of the employees. But at the same time, all the people we were meeting were more in a physical service or a physical good or something that required a lot of capital to start in. So it seemed like it was going to be that much harder for us. So it's kind of why we focused on getting the jobs first. And I think there was always just this burning thought in the back of our minds, like, all right, now how do we make that transition to the next level? Like, how do we start saving money to have that capital to start these businesses when we kind of just stumbled upon e-commerce where you really don't need that much capital to start? There's really not that much barriers to entry when you're trying to sell your products. So it was just perfect for us to kind of get in there and start growing and building stuff. Hey guys, are you guilty of stealing and wearing your wife's panties around the house? Well, if you're like me, then yeah, you do it all the time. Or maybe you're just one of those normal guys that steals your girlfriend's or wife's skincare instead. Hey, I used to do that too, but not anymore. You know why? It's because I use the best natural face serum for men and it's called Caldera Lab. And as you can tell, I even have it on right now. See, Caldera Lab is a company with a conscious, unlike me. They're the only men's skincare line certified by Made Safe, EcoCert, PETA, and Leaping Bunny. Whether you are tackling dry skin, acne scars, wrinkles, or just want to invest in healthier skin, this is the product for you. See, Caldera Lab produces a serum called The Good. It's a non-toxic, natural serum made 100% from plants. And guess what? They're going the extra mile in sourcing. All their ingredients are either organically farmed or wild harvested by hand with a team of botanists right outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The Good by Caldera Lab works on all skin types. It works without beard, a bald head, or even those men with dry scalps. You shouldn't have to decide between clean, sustainable ingredients and real results. All of their products are easy to use and simple to apply. You can apply it at night or use it in the morning. And best of all, you can get it 100% risk-free. If you don't love it, they will refund you in full. So guys, stop stealing your wife's skincare. Use a product that's designed for men's skin and actually clinically proven to bring healthier, younger-looking skin. Again, the good by Caldera Lab is that non-toxic, vegan, multifunctional serum that I have been using every night before I go to bed. It's an easy one-step routine that leaves my skin moisturized, youthful, and protects from free radical damage. And my wife says it's the best my skin has ever looked. So if you want to look like me and receive 20% off your first purchase of the good, then go to calderalab.com and use code MILLIONAIRE at checkout. 
Again, go to calderalab.com and use code MILLIONAIRE. When they say mental health is a journey, they mean it. That's why it's important to prioritize your mental health and wellness every day. When you work on yourself, it brings positive changes in all areas of your life. The long-term effects of therapy can give you the tools to deal with the challenges as they arise, strengthen your relationships, and give you a more positive outlook on life. There's no better time to invest in yourself than right now. And here's my personal endorsement. There are tons of benefits to therapy. Just ask my marriage counselor. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. See, Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24 seven, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace.com has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, anger management, relationship issues, food and eating, and so much more. Talkspace.com is secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of this very podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code MILLIONAIRE to get $100 off your first month and show a little support to our show. Again, go to Talkspace.com and use code MILLIONAIRE to get $100 off your very first month. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that thing up about the yacht. I've never expressed this either. And I've always thought this or I've said, like, if you go to a marina and to see all the boats, like some of those massive boats, like you're saying, dude, if someone just stood there and just asked those people what they did, you'd find great business interviews or, you know, just like trying to figure out what to do in life. And I guess it sounds like you were able to figure that out as you're trying to dock, I guess, some of these things, because, you know, it gives you that potential too. like you see what people can have, because maybe some people will never be, go to one of those or see these massive boats. And it's like, OK, yeah, I can do that, too. Versus if you never saw it or ever like realized that those people had their own businesses. I'm not saying you never would start your own business, but it probably even motivates you more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was awesome. We met some really cool people. They were super friendly too. I mean, they're just enjoying their lives. They're enjoying what they have, what they've built, what they've created and what it's allowed them to have as a lifestyle. I mean, there were some guys that had a brewery and like, you know, they have their boat and they have literally their kegs built into the boat where you can just go up and serve your own beers in the back of the boat. And we were like, this stuff is awesome. Like these people are just loving everything they have. And yeah, I mean, lots of stories of like that. And literally when we weren't on the job, we were hanging out with these people, just talking to them, learning about them, you know, chasing their daughters around and stuff. But like, that's a different story. So yeah, I mean, it was a great environment to be in around a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business people, and just kind of see the way they think about things and the way they act. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for the insight. So back to Steve, Rob, and Mike going to Targets and Walmarts, you made money. Did you just do this like one main time or like, because you said you made 10 or 12 grand, I think, but was this just like one big hit? What was the time period that you made that money? I was over about three months. Okay. The first big hit, I guess. I think we ended up making like probably about $1,500 on the first shopping spree that we went on. And that's where we got that internet router. 
And that was really the proof of concept, I guess. I mean, we paid like 20 bucks for it, threw it up on Amazon, sold it for 80. I think we ended up netting like 40 bucks from it. And we were like, okay, like if we could do this at scale or at volume, then, you know, this is actually not that bad. But the whole retail arbitrage thing can only scale to a certain point because you're completely relying on what you're able to buy inventory from on liquidation from other retailers or from liquidation websites or auctions or whatever it may be. So we kind of realized that we could only do this to a certain point. Right. And so did you figure at that point, you're like, hey, I don't know if I can keep doing this or I still see potential in e-commerce, but we got to figure a a different way to get our own products. Yeah, exactly. We kind of had to start shifting our focus and figuring out how we could build something that was more scalable. And this is just another comparison between building your own product and kind of selling other people's product is like, if you're selling other people's products, you're not the only one that has that idea to go to to Walmart and Target (laughs) and buy that stuff. Other people are doing it. So now you're competing against them on price. You're not winning. It's called the buy box. So like the one who actually is selling the product on Amazon, when you're competing with these other people versus if you build your own brand, you know, it's your brand. There's no one else selling it. There's no competition on your own listing. You're just competing with the other products that are out there on the platform. And it just made sense. It's the next evolution. I mean, it was a small investment. We kind of just took with the money we already had from the retail side, from the retail arbitrage side to start building our own brand there. And I mean, luckily, again, that just kind of hit for us. We were there at the right time. It was early in Amazon. We consumed a lot of content. We figured out exactly what we needed to do. And we started seeing success there pretty much right off the start. Well, I'm glad you said that. So you said you're consuming a lot of content. Did you end up like paying for a class or were you watching YouTube videos? Like, How were you able to figure this out? Yeah. So I think we took some courses, listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews that were out there, watched a lot of YouTube videos, just tried to figure out what other people were doing. So between that, figuring out the process, and then once we actually placed that first inventory order, we were just focused so much on trying to be as successful, learning as much as possible before the product actually arrived and we had to start selling it. Okay. So you said the inventory order. So this is the transition. Again, at this point, are y'all still at your jobs or no? Yeah, we were still at our jobs at this point. Okay. And so you basically placed an order you're saying from China or (laughs) got a product. Just tell us, walk us through that. Cause that's a big difference from you being able to drive and go get the product versus like placing an order somewhere. Just tell us what the product was and how you did that. Yeah. So the products we started selling were actually an art supply product on Amazon. And you know, the whole process for that takes time because it's not like, well, it's also easier to look back and say that this is the way it works. But when you're doing it for the first time, you're sending a bunch of money offshore to someone in China that you have no idea is actually going to fulfill something or not. It's a little sketchy. So it's definitely a risk there. But yeah, we had the art supply product. We reached out to a bunch of different manufacturers in China through the Alibaba platform, ordered some samples for the type of product that we wanted to sell. From there, once we found the sample that we liked the best, we developed our logo and our brand that we put on the product and the packaging. We placed the order with them. I think we had to pay like 70% down and then you pay the other 30% on completion. So that's the big step there is like, once you put that 70% down, I mean, you're committed, <laughs> like you're in it. And how much was 70%? 70%, I think the first order was like 5K. So 70% was like 30, 3,500, 3,600. And that's scary, like you said, because you're going overseas. Well, at least the main thing is, it seemed like it was smart of you to get samples. So you're like, at least I got something. That would be a huge step. But this is still another major step is when you have to send that much money over to China. 
Yeah, I mean, the samples cost a little bit of money. It's kind of a test. We're like, you know what, whatever. Let's just do it. Let's see what it costs. Let's see what they look like, see how good the quality is. But yeah, that big first payment for the inventory order, you're like, crap, like, what am I doing? But then you realize there's companies that have been built on this over the past 50 years or whatever that are used to this. So it's not like you're reinventing the wheel or doing something different. It just seems like a big risk for yourself because... You know, it's your money that you're investing in. Because your- <laughs> it's your money. That's why it seems risky. But like you were saying, it's like you can't get it free. And you realize that too. You're like, okay. And it's still not that bad, I guess, comparatively. But again, yeah, what does your money that you have to put at risk? It's a little bit different than putting someone else's money at risk. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's fun. I mean, I really enjoyed doing it. It was a learning experience. Luckily, you know, our manufacturer was great. Communication was pretty good. The turnaround time was pretty good. I think it took about three weeks in total to get the entire product manufactured and then another week or so to ship to us. And next thing we know, we have, I think, six big boxes of markers pretty much sitting in our living room that we had to start selling online. From there, we sent it straight to Amazon FBA. The inventory was there at Amazon. And then it was just a matter of us to sell it. And I think it was December 2014. And luckily for us, it went live during the best time to be there. First day, product hits, we sold 30 units and we were like, oh, all right, we stumbled onto something here. You know, we figured out our process worked, what we were doing was working, what we learned worked. And from there, we were just kind of hooked on it. And at the same time, you know, we kept growing that brand and started getting more better and better sales from it. So it was just really awesome. And so from there, again, this is still why you're at Sears. So at what point did you make a transition from doing this Amazon stuff? Because I imagine, did you just start looking at other niches and keep ordering different products and making your own brand while you're doing the Sears thing? Yeah, we started a couple other brands. They didn't get as big as the art supply brand that we currently had. But while we were running that art supply brand, we looked at the companies we were competing against. And you know, we're competing against companies like Crayola, which is a multinational, multi-billion dollar company. And we were selling as much as them or we were selling more than them. And that is kind of, I would say, the aha moment where we were like, oh, we actually know what we're doing on this platform because we're doing a better job than most of these other companies out here. Well, if we're doing a better job than most of these other companies, maybe we can actually get these other companies to pay us to do this for them. And that's kind of where the idea came from it. You know, I remember we got our first client, I think they were selling like snack food products or something on the Amazon platform got a couple more clients. I think we got up to about $5,000 a month in revenue. And from there, we realized that this actually is starting to gain momentum. If we kind of do this full time, we can probably keep growing it faster. And at that point, we kind of all quit our jobs, uh, went into it full time. You know, We had not that much money coming in. We had Luckily, we had some money saved up and we still had the eBooks that were bringing us in some money. So we were like, I think we can at least make this work. You know, $5,000 a month, if we can get to $10,000 a month or $15,000 a month, it's starting to look a little bit better. And yeah, I mean, that was just the start. (laughs) Luckily, now we do a couple million dollars a year in retainer fees from our clients. But I mean, it's just awesome. So I guess even after you did the Amazon thing, got your own brand at that point in time, I mean, how long did it take you to transition to say, hey, not only do I want to do my own products, or maybe you didn't want to anymore, but you wanted to advise bigger brands. How long did that take to figure that out? I think it really didn't take that long to me. I think in general, I think over the course of about six months, we went from having that aha moment, starting the agency side and kind of like moonlighting, doing the work for our clients after hours. And then by the end of that six months, we were like, all right, we've got enough revenue now where we can 
probably make this more successful if we focus on it full time. And we were like, again, at the same time too, it's like, what's the worst case scenario that happens? Like, yeah, we quit our jobs. We go to try to start our own businesses. If it fails, what do we do? Well, we just go back and get other jobs. And when we go to interview, our resumes look that much better because we actually were showing we're entrepreneurs. We tried to start something. So even if we started and failed, we didn't really see that much of a downside to it. And yeah, I mean, within six months, we went from the concept to pretty much doing it full time. Yeah. And I would say too, one of the benefits, I'm sure you looked at it, obviously, is like if you keep buying products from China, yeah, it sounds like it worked at least the first few times and maybe it just kept working. But at least if you're advising people, you're not putting your own money at risk when you're getting your products from China. You're just helping these brands basically help them get onto e-commerce because they weren't doing a good job of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the service side is a huge cash flow business for us. Obviously, the products you still make cash from, but you're holding a lot of inventory. So there is some risk there. So it was kind of a great combination of both because we had the upside from selling the products and the brands and actually building something that had resellable value, but we also had the cash flow to support ourselves from the service. So those two things together have been great for us. And I mean, we still sell our own brands. We're constantly launching new companies and new brands to keep selling online because it's just kind of something that we have going, I don't want to say in the background, but just continually going as well as we're growing the agency we have. All right. So the three of y'all start doing this and I kind of understand like how you got to where you are today. But when y'all all quit your jobs, did you all move in together? Because again, I know you were roommates with Rob, but did Steve come together? or How did y'all do your own e-commerce business then? Yeah. I mean, we were lucky again. Like I said before, we were trying to cut our costs, like minimize our risks, make our savings last as long as possible to really give this business the opportunity to run and see what we could get to. Right when we quit our jobs, the lease on the apartment that Rob and I had expired. So we were out of that. Luckily, Steve's parents had a beach house. My parents had a beach house. Mine was in Rhode Island. His was in Connecticut. So we kind of split time going back and forth between there. So we weren't you know, annoying anyone's parents <laughs> by being there too much. We had very supportive family in that sense. Like they really allowed us to just kind of give it a shot and like see what we could do. Then after a few months, we actually went to Rob's family's beach house, which was in South Carolina in the Myrtle Beach area. So we were like keeping everything very cheap. We didn't have any rent expense. We didn't have anything like that. You know, our inventory that we were ordering from Asia was pretty much just going to a warehouse in the US being prepped and then sent right to Amazon. So we didn't have to be in any one physical location. And that concept kind of kept expanding. I mean, we traveled a little bit more. We're in Florida. Whose beach house was in Florida? We rented an Airbnb in Florida. So we got a good deal on that one, actually. Yeah. I mean, luckily we just had those advantages, which really helped us. What was the work life for y'all then? I mean, were y'all just working a lot too, or were you still kind of, I mean, you're at the beach, which is nice, obviously. And I mean, I think most people would like kind of die to do that. It sounds like you're doing it with your two best friends going to the beach houses. Were y'all still working a lot or would you just say you're just doing like 40 hours a week or even less? No, we were working a lot, probably like 50, 60 hours. It really depended, but we were taking on pretty much any job we could at that point because we were trying to maximize our reputation, get good reviews on platforms like Upwork, you know, make sure that we were looking like we knew what we were doing. And we were doing a lot of work for way less money than we probably should have been doing it. But that's just the way it was. I mean, we just had to figure out how to get money in the door, how to keep growing this. And during that time, constantly testing and figuring out how do we actually build a sales process and a lead generation process around this to keep getting clients. And we focused a lot on the Upwork platform because that was really great for us. And then one day we just got a big hit from it. We had a multi-billion dollar company. Well, we had an agency that was working with a multi-billion dollar company 
that sold the multi-billion dollar company on Amazon services, but had no idea what to do on Amazon. And <laughs> we were one of the, we were the top agency at that point on Upwork for Amazon services. He just reached out to us and yeah, from there it was pretty much history. The business right there gained all the traction we needed. So the agency, was it a PR agency? What type of agency sold that they could help with their e-commerce and then they really couldn't? I don't remember what exactly what they did. I think he did uh, Facebook ads or something, but social media advertising. Yeah, I mean, he sold them on the idea that, yeah, he could do e-commerce. And then he couldn't. On Amazon, <laughs> and he couldn't. So luckily for us, that he existed. Right, yeah. Well, that's awesome, because that's kind of cool. I mean, I didn't even know that you had, was it just the three of y'all using one profile on Upwork or something, or y'all had your different profiles? Y'all were kind of just like freelancers, if you will, where people would hire you to do this? Yeah, we each had our own profiles, but then there's like a way you can create like an agency that you're all part of. And so like all of our reviews and all of that was going kind of towards the agency scores and reviews, I think. And we just kept growing it there. We were like number one ranked for Amazon services or Amazon advertising or whatever it was. And yeah, that's just how we maximized our visibility to begin with. And now, I mean, we do things differently now. We don't rely on that. We focused a lot more on content marketing to grow our business. But in the beginning, that was the main source of where we were getting clients from. No, that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. That's awesome to hear about because those are the things that people wonder, like, how do I get started? It's the three of you guys started with your own profiles on Upwork getting paid, right? And it was a great idea too, because that way, I mean, I imagine even at first, maybe you were doing it hourly just to try to figure it out, but then you started doing per contract basis or whatever, but everyone's got to start somewhere. And it was a great idea, I guess, like you said, and that what led to you getting that big hit from a guy selling he could do e-commerce and really couldn't, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just a lot of it's luck, a lot of it's timing for us. That's a prime example of what it was. I mean, even getting into the Amazon space in general, it was luck and timing. Uh, we just got in there at the right time, learned how to do it ourselves at the right time and we were lucky enough to have other people that also needed to do this at the time and we were lucky enough to be at the top of upwork or odesk or whatever it was called but anyway the point is that i think the more that you prepare yourself the more you're ready to take on something the more luck that you're gonna have and that's just kind of the way that we grew it initially and i mean now i think we have a lot more processes so we're not relying on luck all the time but i mean there's still definitely instances of that happening within the business you get more at bats, basically, if you have the opportunity to do stuff like this. But if you felt like working 10 hours a week with your friends, right, you had way less opportunities. So just say even, even that first year, how much did you end up making doing this yourselves? Well, that first year was like half of our salaries. So we still made a good amount of money to support ourselves. And then the second half of the year, I think we each ended up making like... 15,000, 20,000. So it wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't crazy. Yeah, between three of y'all, yeah. right? Yeah. It wasn't a lot of money, but we saw that there was traction there and that you know we could grow it. Year two, or well, the first full year, we were able to really start realizing that and we were still doing a lot of the work ourselves. The first full year, we hit close to 200000 in profit overall. So we went from making not that much money to making okay money. And we were like, all right, like now let's keep pushing this. And yeah, I mean, we've just been scaling it ever since. Yeah. So that first full year was 2017? The first full year was 2017, yeah. Okay, so it's still not even that long ago, you know, no. right? To be honest, like if you think about it, I mean, that's pretty awesome. And y'all were just taking contracts on Odesk or Upwork at that point in time. And then you're still in the US or y'all still jumping around beach to beach? Well, I'm in Mexico, you know, they're in Mexico as well. 
Well, I know now, but how about in 2017? Oh, 2017? Yeah, no. That's the first time we moved to Mexico was 2017. You know, we lived at the beach for... Well, I lived at the beach in Playa for four months, and then I went and traveled in Europe, which is something I wish I could still do now. <laughs> and then I, you know, I came to Guadalajara, I met my girlfriend, and I, I pretty much stayed here since. They've kind of been bouncing around between Playa and some other beaches more than I have. So what part of 2017 did y'all move down to Mexico? Well, technically it was New Year's Day 2016 that we moved down there. Or no, sorry, New Year's Eve 2016 that we moved down there. And then we were there you know, for 2017. So our first day in Mexico was, well, our first night in Mexico was New Year's Eve 2016. And that was awesome because we were just partying and having fun. And I don't know, it was just, it's a funny story looking back at it and seeing like what we went through and what we got to enjoy and got to experience. But I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for it because if we hadn't gone down this route, I don't think we would be living the lifestyles that we are today. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's pretty awesome. So ever, ever since you've been doing the e-commerce stuff, you've been basically the beach guy, huh? <laughs> I guess in a way. I mean, now I'm a city guy, unfortunately. But Yeah, but, yeah. but you're still in warm climates, I guess. You've been making your way further south, yeah. I guess, away from... Sanford, Connecticut. Right? Oh yeah. Way far away from there. I don't plan on go. I mean, I go back to visit my family, but other than that, I don't see myself living in Connecticut again. Okay. And so 2017, y'all are in Mexico, basically. I know you said you kind of traveled a little bit, but that's basically where y'all were, the three of y'all. Yeah. It was probably half the year in Europe, half the year in Mexico for me. They were in Mexico for about half of the year in Europe for about a quarter of the year. And then they went back to the US for about a quarter of the year. So well, did y'all ever get any major like fights over this part, like this part of the timeline? No, everything actually worked pretty well. It was pretty smooth. You know, the great thing about having our partners, you know, I kind of mentioned what they were doing. One had sales experience prior to starting this. One had project management experience. You know, my background was in, you know, finance and, you know, more strategy, stuff like that. So we kind of all complimented ourselves or each other well you know, the project manager was making sure everything was getting done on time. The sales guy was going out there and getting new clients. I was, you know, coming up with the strategies for our clients and for our business overall to grow and, you know, learning about marketing and all this other stuff. So no, we complimented each other very well. We really didn't get in many fights during that time. You know, there's still always going to be disagreements and things that we don't agree on, but I think that's more just part of business. It's not like we were really angry at each other personally. It's just, there's an issue with the business. There's obviously going to be different perspectives on it on how to solve that problem. And so did you start hiring virtual assistants at that first full year too, or was it still just the three y'all doing work before you started doing all these hires? The first full year, it was still us doing the work. So okay. we were all working the second full year, the first half of the full year is when we were hiring a lot more virtual assistants to get stuff done for us. And then the third year, which would have been, well, the second half of that second year. Yeah, 2018, the second half of 2018. This is 2018, yeah. We started hiring employees here in Mexico. So we actually got our office and started bringing people onto our team here. And that's really when we started growing. Okay. And as you're making this transition, were you ever worried or it just seems like things just kept going positively? Did you have any hiccups? No, not so much. I mean, I think there's always going to be client churn when you're in client services. It's just the nature of the beast. People are only going to stay with you for so long until they try something else or, you know, they want to see if they can get better results with someone else. That's what my wife said. I understand. <laughs> well, I guess it's a little bit different, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it works. And no, we didn't have any major hiccups. I think the biggest hiccup we've had as a business has really been like the pandemic starting. We had a lot of churn there just because people were freaked out. 
But same time, like e-commerce has just grown year over year over year over year, and Amazon is leading that. So we're kind of positioned very well to keep growing with it, and that's just supported us pretty much all the way. And so 2018, 2019, 2020, and then I guess it's just been slow and steady growth as far as the employee count too. Yeah, first year we had about four here in Mexico. That was the end of 2018. 2019 we had about six more employees, so we got up to about ten there. 2020, obviously things were a little crazy. Things went a little sideways. We got up to about 14. And then this year so far, we've already hired six employees here in Mexico. So you know that's how we're up to 20 employees now. And on the US side, we were continuing to bring people on, but they were more independent contractors per se than a real employee. And were those the people who were like doing like pictures and stuff like that for you? Like what would you hire people in the US for versus like why not hire them in Mexico? Yeah. So this was definitely some, one of the areas that we made a mistake in the business was that we were hiring people in the US. <laughs> That's a mistake. <laughs> that was a mistake. Yeah. No, to do the client facing stuff. Okay. Because they had more experience on the Amazon side. I mean, the reality is, is that e-commerce isn't as big in other countries as it is in the US. So when it came to that, we had relied a lot on that. And then alternatively here in Mexico, we relied a lot on the you know, graphic design, content writing, just business operations, things like that. But now we've kind of reversed that and we're actually hiring client facing people down here and less people in the US to do the client facing stuff. So that's really where we started to see a lot more of our growth is when we actually started bringing everyone in in-house down here and having way more control over everything. So what do you mean by client facing? What's that? So if we think about it, the way the business runs is that we're partners in a way with our clients. So we're trying to figure out the best marketing strategies, the ways to help them get the most sales on the platform. And that's a conversation. It's not like we're going to do this one thing. And our concern at the beginning, we had two concerns really. One was that we had concerns about the quality of the English speaking that we could find here, which was completely dispelled. We found people that are pretty much native English speakers here. And the other concern that we had was just US business owners more or less being racist against these people. <laughs> So we kind of went the US client facing side or the account management side initially. And once we started finding people down here that were almost native English, we were like, well, why are we paying so much for the people in the US when we can just hire down here for you know a much lower cost? And that's really when we started accelerating the growth a lot more and really starting to bring in a lot more revenue. So the client facing people, were they actually going in person to meet people in 2019, the USA people? Now we've never actually, I think we've only met like two or three clients in person. All of our sales since we pretty much started have been online. Everything's been virtual. We use a lot of video call services, just interface and talk with our clients because the reality is we already knew that if we're working in an e-commerce world, there's no reason for us to be on site. There's no reason for us to really have physical location anywhere where people have to be from. And because of that, at the same time, we're able to be virtual, tap into a much broader talent pool than just being in any one location. When they're client focused, what was the name for it when you said it? Client facing. Client, client facing. facing. Yeah. Sorry. So there's client facing people in the US. Were they doing video calls with those types of people? Like you're yeah. oh they were. And so yeah. that you just wanted more of a USA looking person versus like a Mexican doing the video calls. That was your thought process that you're like scared that they might be like, okay, they're in Mexico. I don't know. Yeah, it was more that we were scared of the reaction that the clients would have. Right. It wasn't so much that we didn't, you know, trust the people or didn't believe that we could get good people. It was just more that we thought clients were going to react poorly to it. Yeah, I feel you 100% because like I employ Filipinos. I would know exactly what you're saying. And I think anyone listening would be like, okay, like if I had a client facing person and they're a Filipino, 
versus like an American, they might just be judgment oriented. And then you're like, okay, maybe they don't think they can do as good a job when really, obviously that's not the case. So, so you're able to get over that pretty quick after like, what made you make that transition? Did you just try out someone in Mexico and you're like, Hey, they do just as good of a job. Yeah, actually that's kind of the way it works. Well, we had two things that were going on. One was that the problem with having all these people in the US as independent contractors was we essentially didn't have good control over what the final product was. They all had different levels of experience with Amazon. So certain clients were seeing more success than others or the communication skills of some were not the same as others and the clients were more frustrated with that. And, and another thing is that there just weren't that many people that knew what they were doing on Amazon to begin with. So it really didn't matter whether they were US or in Mexico or in any other country because we were going to have to train them no matter what. So they actually knew what they were doing on Amazon. So we gave our first chance to, I think it was 2019 to our first client facing employee here. What was his name? Ramiro. Ramiro, which is like a very, you know, that's not an English name. Like, and you said Romero, this is all on you, bro. <laughs> More or less. I mean, we were there supporting him, <laughs> yeah. but like the amount of training we gave him compared to the amount of training that we have now was nothing. And we literally joke about it with him all the time. Like, thank God you're as smart, as thorough as you are. Cause I don't think a lot of other people would have done as well as you did with how we were supporting you. He was a very smart kid. He grew up traveling all over the world because of his dad's job. He spent a lot of time in the U.S., but he was born in Mexico, went to university in the U.K. His English was literally like perfect. Sounds like you and me. I mean, it still is perfect, but sounds like you and me. And he had a background in engineering. So it was perfect for us because we had someone that was interested in how things worked, was interested in learning and could communicate clearly. And that was like, it was a home run for us. And that was the first one that we tried. And then from there, we realized that what the opportunity was. And then we just kept scaling like that because we were finding more and more people that could communicate well or, you know, had you know very good command of English or had e-commerce or marketing experience that we could then give them the Amazon experience and really help them to be good client facing managers for our clients. So yeah, it worked perfectly. So I've listened to a number of podcasts and I actually the guy that runs US staffing services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him, with one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content. Okay. It seems like it makes sense. Like if I were in your shoes, I'd probably do the same thing. And I think a lot of people would, because again, you didn't want to do that right in the beginning because you don't know how it would work, but it's like, Hey, try it out with Romero. And then if that works, you know, you probably tried out a couple other times just to make sure it wasn't just him if it didn't work out or if it did. But then you're like, okay, it makes total sense. I'm going to just keep hiring Mexicans to yep. do this as I did. They're doing everything else. Why can't they do this? That's exactly what happened. I mean, he was the guinea pig. I tell him that all the time that he was the guinea pig. And then we hired another one, 2020. It worked as well. And then, you know, since about this past fall until now, we've just been really scaling up with the team down here. Well, yeah, I guess, thank you for taking us along the timeline. I mean, is there anything else I left out or anything else you think people should know about your story here? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot of it. As a business, it's, it's exciting to see something that you kind of take from an idea and 
make it successful and just keep it growing and you know the different ways that you kind of reinvent yourself and reinvent your business to adapt what's going on you know it's been one heck of a journey i know i have a lot more things that i'm going to be learning and a lot more changes that i'm going to need to make to make this business keep going and it's just fun to keep learning keep seeing what the opportunities are like hiring in mexico like who who would have known that would have been a great idea until we actually tried it so keep testing keep trying new things and then you'll usually figure out what works best for your business yeah, and what are you worried about most for the like the future of your business here? <laughs> I'm really not that worried because I know that e-commerce is only going to continue to grow. We may see, I think we'll probably see a little pullback at some point if the economy really turns around. But I mean, that's probably going to be short-term pain we're going to feel. And I think it'll probably come back after that. The The biggest thing that I'm worried about from a business standpoint is just really the competitors that are getting into the space. I mean, we're well known in what we're doing, but there are a lot of big agencies out there that are pouring a lot of money into the Amazon side right now to really bring their knowledge up to base, whether it's acquiring other companies or whether it's building it out in-house. You know, it's just part of the beast. Like the profile of our competitors keep growing. We're no longer working against, you know, one person operations. We're working against multi-billion dollar agencies. So it's a cool thing. It's a challenge, but it's just part of growing. What's the future of like e-commerce other than on Amazon? Do you think doesn't Walmart has the e-commerce center or I guess website? I, I don't even know what, what you call it. What do you call their platform? I guess the Walmart platform. Yeah, we call it the Walmart platform. See, I'm um, good. I knew I'd figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I didn't, there you go. But do you see anything else other than Amazon? Because I think we all see Amazon growing, but I'm just wondering based on your knowledge, obviously, what you see the future of e-commerce, where it's going. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think when it comes to... The idea of traditional retailers, I think Walmart is probably the biggest competitor in the e-commerce space to Amazon. And I mean, there are a lot of things that could come in to affect Amazon, obviously regulation being one of them, because they are getting a lot of attention from regulators around the world. But I think another company that has a lot of potential is Facebook and Instagram. I think they have a good idea uh, when it comes to social selling and actually you know, getting the product in front of customers where they're spending a lot of time already on their platform. So I think if they can figure out a way to you know, make customers actually trust the purchase experience more through their platforms, I think they could continue to grow a lot as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. And I guess if anyone wanted to get in touch with you about how you could help their brand, what would be the best way for them to reach out and say, hey, Michael, come help me out? Yeah. Thank you for having me here, Austin. I really appreciate it. But the best way to get in touch is just emailing me directly, mike at amzadvisors.com. I'm there to answer any questions you have about e-commerce, about you know hiring in Mexico, about building a business, entrepreneurship, whatever it may be. But if you're specifically looking for help on the Amazon platform, you know, email me or check out our website, amzadvisors.com. Yeah. And I guess... This might sense thinking about the future, like even if there are more and more players getting into the Amazon space per se, dude, I bet you can make another business of like helping people get Mexicans to work for them, right? Oh, yeah. Because that's just a whole different niche as far as just trying to, you know, you've been down there, you know their culture. You even almost married into one, right, so far. But, you <laughs> know, yet, I just, but close, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's just interesting that... You know, people could be scared to hire virtual assistants in different countries, but Mexico is so close that I think just people in their minds psychologically, like, like, okay, they're only the country right below America, right? You United States. So maybe that's something that you could look to in the future as far as if people needed help since you kind of even brought that up, right? It's funny you actually say that because I do have a project going on right now. to do that. <laughs> So you may be hearing more about that soon. <laughs> yeah, I've been scanning your desktop, seeing what you've been looking at. So don't worry. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Mike, for coming on and I appreciate you sharing your story. 
Thank you, Austin. I appreciate it. And I just hope that everyone got something out of it. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro. And I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you in the membership forum.